leaders do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, even if it's not in their best interest. And so I think even if it's going to be a negative influence on your career or your position right then, you got to do what's right because the people who work for you are watching you. And if they ever catch you not doing what's right, I don't care if eventually what the wrong decision you made helps you. The people who are working for you and working with you, if they notice you're not doing the right thing, the trust piece is gone. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. Well, my guest today is Lieutenant Colonel Retired Oak McCulloch, a veteran of 23 years service in the United States Army as an Infantry and Armour Corps officer. His operational deployments include Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm in Saudi Arabia and Iraq, support operations in Bosnia, and a peacekeeping deployment to Kosovo. He was also involved in a number of disaster relief operations during his service. Retiring from the Army in September 2009, Oak joined the staff at the Bay Area Food Bank as the Associate Director and served as the Vice Chair for Military Affairs on the Mobile Area Chamber of Commerce. Leadership's a clear passion for Oak and he continues to contribute to the development of young officers for a number of roles in the US Army's ROTC program at Stetson University in Deland, Florida and the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University as well. A speaker, author and specialist leadership expert Oak is a well-known speaker who gives presentations of a variety of topics, including leadership, success, military history, current events, college preparation, and others. His first book was published in February 2021, Your Leadership Legacy, Becoming the Leader You Were Meant to Be, where Oak highlights principles that will benefit today's leaders and inspire the leaders of tomorrow at all levels and in every profession. What I loved about our conversation was Oak's clear leadership focus, his key principles that he applies on operations, and his candour of what it really takes to lead people. Let's jump right in. So, Oak McCulloch, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Martin. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, look, welcome, and we're going to get into the conversation, but question I always ask my guests is, how did you end up joining the military, and in your case, the United States Army? Yeah, so I really didn't know what I wanted to do, as most young men don't, uh, until about my sophomore, junior year in high school, I guess, is when I finally figured out that I liked being a leader. So I was the lead, you know, captain of my athletic teams, baseball, basketball, American football. I was president of student government. I was president of my student class. So I kind of understood that I I had this leadership thing and I actually enjoyed it. And so I wanted to be a part of something bigger than myself, I guess. And really, for me, it was about giving back to this country. You know, I grew up small little farm town in northern Illinois, uh, right in the middle of the country. And my father never finished the fifth grade. My mother never finished the 10th grade. Now they went back and got their GED and all that, the high school equivalent. But, you know, nowhere else at least in my travels, nowhere else in the world is, do I happen? Where I come from that and I get to go to the United States Military Academy, I retire a lieutenant colonel in the army. 
and I get to make decisions. So I kind of decided that I wanted to be an army officer and help defend what this country stands for so that other young men and women who were like me could have the same choices I had. Yeah. And uh, we'll get to it, but that's something that you're doing now still, isn't it? You should have been involved in in helping the next generation of the youth of the United States to to understand what a military career could be for them. Yeah, that really is my passion. I think that's so important. Yeah. So growing up, who were your leadership heroes? Who were those influences early, either before you joined the military or in the early in your military career? Yeah. Yeah. So obviously my father, you know, I, I am who I am because of my father. There's no doubt not about that, good and bad. <laughs> but I also, you know, I always tell people there were two people in my life that when I was growing up that really had a big influence on me. One was my basketball coach, Coach Nizwicki, Terry Nizwicki, who I still have, you know, I still send emails to and every once in a while in contact with. And he had a huge impact on my life. And then my high school history instructor, professor, teacher, whatever you want to call him in high school. And I always tell people he's the reason I majored in history in college because he just made it so interesting to me. And he was just a, he was a Vietnam veteran and he thought it was his duty to help develop young men and women. And he he really took an interest in me and really helped me. And then, of course, once I came on into the military, I had several people who decided they wanted to mentor me. And I was I was glad to have it and lucky to have the people who mentored me. And I had a couple who eventually ended up a two, three, one, even a four star general who were mentors to me. So that, that was invaluable to me, without a doubt. Yeah, it's uh, so important, isn't it, those early sort of influences and your Graduation from the military academy and took you into being a commissioner as an infantry officer. Is that right? Yeah. So I didn't graduate from West Point. Okay. I went there for two years and then I uh, okay. Then I came home and helped my father run a business. Okay. And I finished up in ROTC, right. where I met my wife, who was also in ROTC and was an army nurse for eight years. So that's I, I did that. And then when I graduated, I got my commission as an infantry officer, hmm. did my first five years in the infantry, and then I switched over to armored cav yeah. for a total of about 23 years in the Army. Yeah. With some, as the United States military has done quite a lot of, I guess, in the last, you know, many years, uh, saw some operational service in uh, a whole bunch of different scenarios, including Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm and also involved in other operations as well. What were those lessons of leadership from those operational environments for you? Yes, it's probably the most important one for me is the trust piece. You know, Hmm. if people trust you, they will do anything for you. And especially in our business, in the military, but afterwards too, you know, helping to run the food bank and what I do now as a Department of Army civilian. It's still about trust because leadership is about people. Plain and simple, period. Leadership is about people. Mm. And leaders who don't understand that aren't good leaders. It's just that simple. Mm. It is all about people. And people need to trust you if you want them to lead you. And especially if you're going to take them in harm's way, they need to really trust you. Mm. So to me, it's all about trust and the ways you build that trust. Mm. And in that operational environment, were there sort of situations there where you go, actually, that was a defining moment for me where I understood that lesson most, you know, upfront? 
So I think I figured that out a little bit before, mm-hmm. right before that Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Yeah. But even before that, I was involved in a hurricane relief, Hurricane Hugo in Charleston, where, you know, interesting. I was an infantry guy. I had an infantry platoon, bunch of infantry guys, had no idea how to run a warehouse. We get to Charleston that's devastated by this hurricane. And they say, okay, my company commander says, okay, oh, take your platoon. You're going to run that warehouse. And I was like, what? <laughs> I run a warehouse. He said, figure it out, young man. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, me and my platoon sergeant sat down. We figured it out to make sure everybody knew what their jobs were. And, yeah. and we did it, you know. And that kind of, during that little piece, kind of made us, I think, bond and my soldiers kind of understood that mm. I had their best interest at heart. You know, we worked the night shift. I made sure that I was, we didn't have any electricity. We didn't have any running water. We didn't have bathrooms. We were, you know, so we were out there and I made sure that I took care of them. And, and uh, I, I think the trust grew exponentially during that, that operation. Yeah. It's often what you do in those crisis moments that your troops are really watching to see what you do, aren't they? They, you know, it's your care for them. It's the your ability to be adaptive, to be resilient, to stand up. You know, you don't know what the next step is, but you're damn sure you're going to find it. Yeah, absolutely. Because you, you have to, you know, and one of my favorite people, and I got to, I was lucky enough in my life to hear him talk three times was Lieutenant General Hal Moore, you know, the author of we Were Soldiers Once and Young, that great movie that mm. was uh, based on that book. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to hear him talk three times. And one of the things he said that stuck with me, and I use it all the time, and I, I absolutely agree and believe it. He said, you know, life isn't like baseball. It isn't three strikes and you're out. Mm. If you try something and it doesn't work, you try something else. And if that doesn't work, you try something else. And if that doesn't work, you try something else until you figure it out and it works. Yeah. And you have to do that. Yeah. Successful people do that. Yeah. It's that sort of constant reevaluation, isn't it, of what's the next step? You know, being observant of what's going on around you. What do I need to do next? You know, finding the source of information that will help you make that next decision. Yeah. And I think it's also a huge part of what I, at least in my career, I've always believed is trusting in the people who work for you. You know, I give my first platoon sergeant, Master or then Sergeant First Class Penson, who was a, a country boy from Mississippi. You know, he's about six foot six, about 250 pounds, big boy from Mississippi. And I give him a lot of credit for turning me, helping me become the leader that I was. During those initial times when I was a platoon leader, my first leadership position on active duty. And, you know, he just took me under his wing and said, look, you know, I've been in the arm. I was 24 years old. He says to me, look, sir, you're the platoon leader. If you want to do something, we'll do it the way you want to do it. He says, but if you're messing up, I'm going to tell you. He said, I've been in the army for 23 years. Hmm. He'd been in the army almost as long as I've been alive. <laughs> yeah. Why would you not listen to somebody like that? <laughs> yeah. And we need feedback, don't we? You know, we, we need to give not that we necessarily need to give permission to people like that to give us feedback because they'll give it to us anyway, but that feedback is so important is that we do need, when we create that environment where, like, I'm open to getting feedback, they're going to give it to you. Yeah, well, and if you don't allow that, if you have an environment where that's they don't feel comfortable giving you that feedback, even without you asking for it, hmm. then 
you've created an environment where they're not going to help you and they're not going to give you ideas. And now you depend, you're depending only on your own knowledge, Mm. your own ideas and your own ability. And I don't care how good you are. Mm. That's not the best way to do something. There's always other ideas out there that you can use that other people have. Yeah. So you have to have that environment that goes back to just creating that culture of servant leadership where you people understand that you're you're there to help them just as much as they're there to help you yeah i often say that you need to uh, ensure that people are volunteers to the team goals not conscripts to yours absolutely that's, that's a great way to say it. i'm going to use that that's good <laughs> absolutely you should do that so we know it doesn't go well all the time what was one of the biggest lessons from your time in the service uh yeah you know even if you're doing the right thing that because, you know, leaders are supposed to do the right thing and it, it isn't always in your best interest. And so, you know, there was a time where I, I believe and I still believe that I did the right thing. My boss didn't believe that and it influenced the rest of my career. Mm. But that's OK, because I really do believe I did the right thing. Mm. And, you know, I preach to people all the time. Leaders do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, even if it's not in their best interest. And so. I think one of the things that that I learned was that even if it's going to be a negative influence on your career or your your position right then, you got to do what's right because the people who work for you are watching you. Mm. And if they ever catch you not doing what's right, I don't care if eventually what the wrong decision you made helps you. The people who are working for you and working with you, if they notice you're not doing the right thing, the trust piece is gone. So Mm. I think that's the hardest thing that I... The one thing that I had to learn that I had to deal with was I paid a price for making that decision and I, I was fine with it. Yeah. Eventually. It hurt when it happened, but eventually I was fine with it. Yeah. And at the heart of that, that's about what integrity is all about, isn't it? It is. And leaders have to have integrity. That's rule number one as a leader. Because mm. again, as my father used to tell me, he said, nobody can ever take your integrity from you. You have to give it away. So... You know, and and if you understand that, that how important that is, then you'll protect it because it is that important. Yeah. At the under end of scales of operations and, you know, your biography shows a a history of operations from, I guess, across the spectrum of what military operations include. Uh, One of those was being the operations officer during a peacekeeping mission to just Kosovo. That's right. And, you know, most it's a place that people... Perhaps is not in current memory, but certainly those that were around at the time, it was a it was a significant conflict with a lot of challenging human rights issues to deal with. What do you remember of that particular operation and the challenges that you and your team faced? Yeah, well, I remember two two right off the top of my head. Number one is just the hatred that was there, and you know, luckily most of our countries, America, Australia, we don't we. We think we understand what hatred is. We have no idea what hatred is. Mm. I mean, it was unbelievable. I'll give you a story. We were taking a priest, a Serb priest, to a meeting. He didn't have a way there, so I was taking him to the meeting. And in route, there was a disturbance in an Albanian town, so I had to go there, and he was in the back of my Humvee, and I told him, I said, as long as you stay in the back of the Humvee, you're going to be fine. My guys will take care of you. You get out of that Humvee, you're on your own. And so as I come back, here's this little five-year-old Albanian boy. I mean, he couldn't have been more than five. And he walks up to the Humvee and he looks at the Serb priest in there 
And he goes like this. A five-year-old boy has been taught to hate people that bad, Hmm. that badly. So that was the number one thing that stuck in my mind, just the hatred that was there ingrained. And it's going to take generations to get that out of there. I mean, I, you know, I read somewhere where it takes about 50 years to change something like that. Mm. And I believe that. I mean, if you look at Northern Ireland, that's about how long it took mm. to get where we're at today. And it's still not perfect, but it's a lot better than it ever was, uh, at least in re- recent history. And the second thing was I had to t- make sure my guys understood that you can't save everybody. And I'll give you a story. There was a case, this guy, we called him the Mad Mortarman. He would just go around and in random Different times of the day, at night, he would just fire mortars into towns. And he would always fire them into Serb towns. So he was an Albanian, obviously. And one night, he was firing mortars in. And we got there right after it happened. And one of my soldiers, platoon leader, lieutenant, went into this house that had been hit. And he brings out, and he's got this baby in his arms that's dead. And I could tell he was really upset. And I let him do what he needed to do. And then I called him over and I said, listen, I said, you can't save everybody. You can do what you got to do. You got to do, you can do what you can, but you got to remember why you're here to save as many people as you can, but also to make sure that you take care of your soldiers and get them home. Mm. And I think, you know, that young Lieutenant is now a Colonel in the United States army and in command of a, of a brigade. So, I mean, you know, those kind of things make you feel good, but you know, I could just tell he was hurting and he just needed to understand that. Yeah. Look, that's the business we're in. Mm. You can't save everybody. I'm sorry. This isn't going to happen. Yeah. In military terms, that's sort of what we might refer to as the burden of command to find the right way through those and navigate those kind of circumstances. But that burden, I think, applies and should apply when people are in responsibility and have leadership responsibilities in organizations as well. Absolutely. What's your advice to those people in terms of how you carry that responsibility as a leader? Yeah. So I, I think, again, it just it comes down to you got to understand that it's first of all, it's a privilege to be in a leadership position. I would say, you know, stress and the burden of leadership is a privilege. Yeah, I believe that 100 percent. So you got to understand that that is the privilege that you have. And the piece that you got to understand is that it is not about you. And it is about the people who you are, had the, you have the privilege to lead. So doesn't mean that you're not going to get your rewards because if you take care of the people who work for you, they're going to be successful. And if they're successful, your organization's going to be successful. And if your organization's successful, then you're going to be successful. You're just doing it for the right reasons. You're not doing it for the selfish reason of your own self. You're helping the people in your organization get better. And also in those situations where you're taking them into harm's way, they got to understand that you have their best interest at heart. And if they do, they'll do anything you ask of them. And, you know, I tell all these organizations that produces second lieutenants who are going out there as platoon leaders in infantry and armor and all kinds of different situations. And I tell every single one of them before they leave off when we graduate, when they graduate and we commission them, I always tell every single one of them, look, you are joining an organization and having a position of authority where your job is to take people into harm's way and bring back as many as you can, understanding that you can do everything right and make all the right decisions and somebody might still die. Mm. That's just the the nature of our beast. Mm. So you got to understand that so that you are taking care of them and thinking about the decisions you're making. And as long as you do that, I think 
that you'll figure out, as long as you understand that that's what you're getting into, in the, at least in the military business, then I think you'll be okay. In the civilian world, I think you just got to understand that you have an impact in the lives of people. Mm-hmm. It may not be life and death like it is in the military, but you definitely impact and influence the lives of the people who work for you, not just today, but maybe for the rest of their lives by decisions that you're making. Yeah. And those decisions in business are very much about decisions you make in terms of the, you know, about that business uh, contribute to the livelihood of the people that work in that team. You know, creating a safe workplace contributes to their mental well-being and health. All of those things could have an impact on their lives. Absolutely. You know, my son worked, he, he works uh, very closely. He has uh, some train depots that he's in charge of. So he, he's a conductor of a train and, and all that, a lot of safety issues. And, you know, he drills it into their heads every day, the importance of safety. The, the number one goal is that everybody gets to go home tonight. Mm. You know, so even in the civilian world, you know, you got life and death stuff like that you got to work with yeah. in some jobs as well. Yeah. And like you said, even if it isn't life and death, you're still, if you're the leader of a business and you don't do it well and your business fails, now you're, you've affected the livelihood of everybody who works for you. So yeah. it is a privilege to be a leader and you got to take it seriously. Yeah. I can't help in our conversation go to the fact that, Oak, you spent a couple of years in Australia on the staff at the Australian Command and Staff College. What was that like? Yeah, I did. I was the exchange officer there in Australia and in Canberra, and we really did enjoy it. I enjoyed my time there, enjoyed working with the Australian military. And, you know, the great thing about it is because I taught at our staff college first, and we have different foreign militaries who send officers to our staff college. But the Australian staff college, being in the Asian Pacific area, you guys even have different countries that yeah. contribute to your staff college. So I got to work with people that I never would have gotten to work with before, you know, from different countries that I never would have gotten to work with if I hadn't been there. Mm. And it was really an eye opener. It really was to be there and to be able to work with the Australian military. And I was lucky enough that they actually put me in charge of a couple of the sections that um, like I was in charge of the division level exercise and I was in charge of the uh, multinational exercise. So I got to got to do some neat things. I got to go to England. They sent me there with an Australian because I they didn't have a, a computer simulation game that we could use at the end of the course to kind of evaluate if we learn. Mm-hmm. And I brought it up and they said, well, then go buy us one. I said, I said I'm an American. <laughs> I'm not Australian. Well, we'll send an Australian with you, but go find what it is you want. Mm. We'll buy it. And they did. I went to England and, mm. and figured it out. And we bought the Australian command staff bought it. I think they still use it today. Yeah, very cool. You get to the point in your career and you go, it's time to transition. That happens in different ways in different services. But what was your transition from your service to a corporate world like? Yeah, I always tell people, you know, it's kind of strange because out here I was a combat arms officer for 23 years. And then my first job out of the military after I retired was running the day-to-day operations of a food bank. You don't get any different than that. That's 180 degrees difference. And it was interesting. It really was. Although I think leadership is leadership, and I believe that 100%. I don't care where you learn how to lead and where you practiced it. If you know how to lead people, you know you can lead any organization. I believe that. There are nuances. You know, Although the principles are the same, how you apply them might be a little bit different depending on what type of a job you had. In the food bank, a lot of the people that 
that worked there were volunteers. So you had that piece that you had to deal with as well. And so it was interesting. And, it, and it, there was a learning curve, no doubt about it. Um, but I think that I finally figured it out and it didn't take me too long. But I always tell people, again, leadership's leadership. And I approved it because when I took over the food bank, the day-to-day operations of the food bank, I was second in charge of the food bank. Mm. We were handing out 1.2 million pounds of food a year. When I gave up that job 18 months later, we were handing out 3.8 million pounds of food a year. Wow. That's a significant logistics exercise. That was hard for me too, because you know, here I was a combat arms officer. I wasn't a logistics <laughs> officer. So I had to learn the trucking piece and the, the distribution piece and all that kind of stuff. And that was probably the hardest piece for me to learn. Hmm. Not the hardest, but it just took me the most time to, to learn, to get my mind wrapped around that. You know, in the old saying that, Amateurs talk about tactics, experts talk about logistics, and that's so true. You could, you could come up with all the plans you wanted, and I figured that out real quick. I could come up with a huge plan. Yeah. Then I got to figure out how to get the food there with the trucks I had available, the drivers I had available, the time I had available. Mm. I think all of us combat-type people come to have a higher level of respect for logistics when we're actually faced with those kind of situations. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we're just so used to ordering stuff and it's showing up. We don't even think about where it came from and the effort to get it there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the transition includes the food bank and you've done a whole bunch of other things since leaving uh, full-time service with the U.S. Army and sort of in and around. And you've maintained some connections uh, with, you know, sort of uh, the U.S. Army in terms of the ROTC. For those in Australia, can you explain what the ROTC program is about and for those that are not familiar with it? Yeah, so there's three ways to produce officers in the United States Army. You know, I think they're in Australia, really the only way is through the Royal Military Academy, if I remember correctly. Here in America, there are three ways. The United States Military Academy, which is kind of the equivalent of the Royal Military Academy there in, uh, I think, Royal Military College, right? Yeah. In, In Canberra. And then we have ROTC, which is at all the other universities in America. Like there's 275 universities that host Army ROTC program. And then if you add partnership schools like the program that I'm in, the host is Emory-Riddle, but I've got three other schools as well that kind of contribute to that. So if you add all those in, there's about 1,300 schools in America that you can do Army ROTC for four years and come out an Army officer. Wow. And then, of course, the last one is our officer candidate school, which is a nine-week course, you know, that take enlisted soldiers and turn them into officers. Mm-hmm. So those are the three ways. And so I'm involved in the recruiting for the Army ROTC program here mm. at the school that I'm assigned to. Yeah. What's attracting people to join the U.S. military right now? So I think it's the what I'm figuring out, what I'm seeing is it's not even about the money anymore to help them pay for school because a lot of we can do that as well. Some people get a scholarship to help them pay for school. But for me, what I'm seeing is it's the people who really do believe in what this country stands for. And it's wanting to be a part of give back to their country and be a part of something bigger than themselves. I actually Mm -hmm. we brought in, I think, 58 new cadets yesterday to our program here. And I I don't know how many times I heard somebody say, you know, I just want to give back. Mm -hmm. I want to help somebody else in this country. And so I think that's the predominant thing right now. The ones who are joining are joining for that reason. Mm, that's great. And, you know, what advice do you give to those young leaders that are looking to step up and take more responsibility and, and you know, you're 
you obviously get involved in, I guess, in the education of those officers. And, you know, what are those leadership lessons you're giving to those junior officers right off the bat? Yeah. And I'm lucky enough that I, uh, you know, I'm a mentor to some that have already graduated. I get messages and, you know, asking for advice from them. But the number one thing that I tell every junior leader, every leader, person who wants to go out and be a leader or any brand new leader, the one piece of advice I give them, every one of them, is start building the trust and the way to do. There's a couple ways to do that. Number one, I tell every day, pick one person in your organization and go find out something about that person. Not about work, mm-hmm. something personal. Go out and find out what their spouse's name is, what their kids' names are, what sports do their kids play, what's their hobbies, what, what do they like, what they don't like. Find something personal about one person every single day. And when you do that, you're not only building the confidence of in you, in that person you're talking to that day, but as other people see you talking and doing that, mm-hmm. you're building the confidence in them as well. Yeah. So that's number one. And I had a boss who retired a three-star general and he told me, Oh, never turn down a chance. I don't care how high a rank you get or whatever position of leadership you have, never ever turn down a chance to go get your own cup of coffee. He says, you do two things when you do that. He said, number one, people see that you're not above getting your own cup of coffee. You're still a normal human being. (laughs) And number two, you get to walk out and you get to talk to people. So on your way to the coffee pot, talk to everybody along the way. And he said, and if you're really lucky, there's two or three different ways to get back to your office and every day go a different way. So you can talk to different people on the way back. Mm-hmm. So that those are the two things that I always tell people, young people to do. And the last thing I always, the advice I give them is this lead from walking around. Don't lead from behind a desk. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to have somebody leading them who they never see out in their their area. You want to start building some confidence and some trust, go down and talk to somebody where they're working. Don't bring them into your office. Go talk to them in their area. Then you're starting to really build some trust and confidence with those people. Yeah. One of the urban myths, I think, in corporate, and maybe it's not as strong as it used to be, but was the fact that the next generation are not interested in sort of commitment and all that kind of stuff. I have this hypothesis that one thing that is common across the generations is the fact that everybody wants good leadership. I'm interested in your thoughts about that. Yeah, I think so. And I don't think it doesn't matter what profession and it doesn't matter what level. I mean, we got to have good leaders at every level and every profession. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes, and I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. I didn't say it. Master Sergeant David Powell, a guy who worked for me, and I say he worked for me. He was a better leader than I was probably. One day we were sitting there talking when I was running our ROTC program and we were talking about the significance of what we were doing, producing leaders, not only for the army, but for the country. And he said, you know, boss, great leadership handed down from generation to generation is what develops great nations. And I thought, wow, what a powerful quote. But And the most powerful thing of that quote is this. You can take that word nation and you can substitute anything you want for that. Mm-hmm. Hospital, company, food bank, sports team, university. And it doesn't change the meaning of that one bit because no matter what organization it is, depends so much on leadership. You know, one of my favorite things to say to people is you show me an organization that has good leadership, I will show you a successful organization. You show me one that has poor leadership, and I will show you one that is failing or has failed. 
because it is that important. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to talk about your book. You published that just over a year and a half ago, Your Leadership Legacy, Becoming the Leader You Were Meant to Be. What was the catalyst? I guess I probably know, but you know, what was the catalyst for writing that book? What was that central message that you wanted to get across to the readers in that book? Yeah. So really, it came out of this. When I was running that ROTC program, I was going around talking to high school students and college students. And I'd always ask them, so what do you want to do? What do you want to be? And they'd tell me what profession they wanted to work in. And they'd say, I want to be a leader. I'd say, great. The world needs more leaders. What does that look like? What does it take to be a good leader? And you get this deer in the headlights look. <laughs> they thought that they knew they wanted to be a leader, but they had no idea what that meant and what it took to be a leader. And in fact, they probably wanted to be a leader for the wrong reasons at that point. They wanted it because they wanted a nicer title. They wanted better pay. They wanted more privileges. And that's, I mean, leaders get those kinds of things generally, and that's okay, as long as that's not the reason that you want to be the leader. If that's the reason you want to be a leader, go do something else because you're not going to be a good one. Mm. So I came up with this presentation that I've been given since 2006, and I've added stuff to it, and I've changed it, and I tailor it to whatever organization I'm giving it to. And I've probably given that presentation a thousand times. Probably could do it in my sleep, and if you ask my wife, I probably have a couple times. <laughs> but... So I've been given that and I'd still give it because I still work with high school students and college students. And so I thought at this point in my life, my passion is to get out and talk to as many young men and women as I can. And I realized that I wanted to get out and do the speaking circuit. And if I wanted to do that, I had to write a book because, you know, if you don't have a book, you're not an expert, right? Sure. We all know that's <laughs> not true. Yeah. But that's the conception out there. You, you got to have a book or nobody wants to hire you to come talk. So that's really what caused me to write the book. I always wanted to write the book, but that's what really finally said, okay, well, you got to write the book. And I really wrote it for two groups of people. I wrote it for young, aspiring leaders or young leaders who are already just starting out as leaders like we did back when we were brand new lieutenants, brand new officers in the, in the military. And I think if you read the reviews of my book and all that, I think I did a pretty good job of hitting that one. Because there's no theory in my book. Mm. It's everyday things that everyday leaders can do yeah. to be better leaders. And then the second group I wrote it for is old men like us or old people like us. Because, and I've had people tell me, you know, after they read it, somebody who'd been a leader for 20, 30, 40 years. And they said, oh, you know, I didn't learn a whole lot of new things from your book. I learned maybe a new couple new techniques. They said, but what I really took out of your book was this. As I was reading along, I came across a section and I thought to myself, you know what? I used to do that really well and I don't do that so well anymore. Maybe I need to go back and dedicate some time to do that again. And I think we can all use that little nudge to, mm. to help get us back to doing some things that we used to do that we've forgotten that was important. Or get overcome by events and we forget that that's something that made us help make us a good leader. And we all need that little nudge every once in a while just to get us back to doing those things. Yeah. Because I don't care how long you've been a leader, you can always get better. Absolutely. If you don't believe that, then go do something else. <laughs> I like that expression. If you don't believe that, go do something else. That's good. Yeah. It's one of those things, isn't it, to, you know, it doesn't matter where you are in the leadership journey. It's that focus on being the best leader you can be and, you know, when you're Young and 20, starting out as an officer, you're a different person to the one you are when you're in your 50s or 60s. And and it's actually that growth mindset that actually sustains your ability to lead people and to continue to be good as a leader. 
Yeah, and I think I think you know if if you really understand that it's not about you, that it is about the people that you've got the privilege to lead and the organization, then you really do have that drive to be the best you can be. Not for yourself, although yeah, you know I, everybody has an ego, and I have an ego. I want to be the best at whatever I do, and I want to win at whatever I do. That was drilled into me by my father. But it really is, if you're doing being a leader for the right reasons, it's to help other people. And again, you're going to get your benefit from it if you do it right for the right reasons. You'll get what you deserve out of it, no doubt about it. But you really do have to try to be the best you can be. You know, as I go around anymore, I hear a lot of people saying that it's okay to fail. And, you know, people are going to fail. Nobody's perfect. I keep trying to convince my wife I am, but she's not buying it. (laughs) Nobody's perfect. We're all going to make mistakes. Okay, I got it. Figure out if you're making a mistake, let's figure out what what we have to do to make it right. Let's move on. But no leader should ever accept that it's okay to fail because it's not okay to fail. It happens every once in a while. We got to overcome it and fix it and do the right things afterwards. But nobody should believe that it's okay to fail. I just don't believe that. And yeah. good leaders don't let their people fail. You might make mistakes, but if you're a good leader, you try to make sure that they never fail. So I think we have to have that drive to be the best we can be. And like I said, my father drilled that into me. My father told, had a saying when I was growing up, and he said, he called it the 75% rule. And he said, Oak, if you can't do something better than 75% of the people that are doing it, then you need to do one of two things. You either need to figure out how to get better at it or you need to go find something else to do because obviously it doesn't matter to you. Mm. And I I lived by that my entire life and I try to pass that on to as many people as I can. And I tell people all the time, if you don't want to win, if you don't want to be the best at what you're doing, I don't want you on my team because I want us to be the best organization we can be for everybody, not just me, for everybody. Yeah. It's actually about that language, isn't it? That sort of the concept of failure is mean, you know, sometimes failing is actually not starting. You know, it's about iteration, isn't it? To be able to go one more and sort of see what you learn and be prepared to learn. That failing to learn is a failure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, good leaders, we learn even from good things. We can be successful and we can still learn how to do something better. Yeah. A good friend who was a football coach, and now he's the president of university, Roger Hughes. And he he said, you know, that you constantly have to look to improve yourself, even when you're successful. And, you know, he liked the idea of what we used to do, what we call in the Army, an after-action review. And I kind of introduced that term to him. And he'd been doing that for years. He didn't even call it that. You know, he'd been looking at what happened, and he thought, okay, this is what we wanted to happen. This is what happened, and this is how we can either make it better or or fix it. And so I think that good leaders are always looking to improve, even when things are successful, Yeah, because you can always get better. You can always make things better than they are. Yeah. Well, Oak, it's been a great to catch up and fascinating conversation. I'm sure we could talk for a lot longer. Hopefully, maybe we get a chance to do that sometime on <laughs> in one of our respective countries or somewhere else in the world. Who knows? Yeah, I'd love that. Anytime you want me to come back, you just let me know. Sure. So, look, can we finish off with the rapid-fire questions, if that's okay? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So, my first question, just fill in the blank. Leadership is blank? About people. Okay. About people, period. Simple. That's it. Yeah, nice. What's your go-to book on leadership other than your own? 
<laughs> so I, I'll give you two books that I think are necessary for every leader to read. Number one, and one of them is even a military book. It is by John Wooden, who was a famous, probably the, the greatest basketball coach in America. Mm-hmm. He was a college basketball coach, but he was probably the greatest basketball coach. And it's John Wooden on leadership. And it's how to create a winning organization. Fantastic book. One of my favorite books. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is actually by an Israeli. And it's called The Heights of Courage by Talalani. And it was about the Golan Heights, the Battle of the Golan Heights in 1973. Mm-hmm. And it's one of my favorite books. And I, I give it to almost every cadet that walks into my office mm-hmm. that talks to me about leadership. I will go over to my bookshelf and I pull it out and I give it to him and I tell him, you will bring this book back to me or I will hunt you down because <laughs> this is my favorite <laughs> book. But I, I want every one of them to read it. I think it's a must read for everybody. Yeah, great. Well, we'll make sure that we get those in the show notes. I wish I had known blank earlier in my career. The importance of listening, that is so huge for a leader. And I didn't learn it till I was about a captain, I think. A captain, and I know it was. I was a captain in the United States Army before I really learned it. But that's, that is so huge as a leader. If you can can learn how to listen and the people actually believe that you want to listen to them, you got it. You've won those people. Mm. Yeah, that's great advice. You get a call from a team member, a crisis just erupted in your company organization. What are your first words to that person? Relax. We'll figure it out. It's going to be okay. Mm. Because again, I go back to Hal Morse. We'll figure it out. If we got to do 10 different things to figure it out, we'll figure it out eventually. You know, and I, I really do kind of keep that mindset because I want people to come to me immediately when something isn't working because it isn't going to get any better if we don't address it. And if you shoot the messenger, then they stop coming. So relax. We're going to make it okay. Yeah, great. And lastly, a go-to quote on leadership. You already have one, but one that's had most influence on your career and leadership. Yeah, I think that the great leaders hand down, you know, Great leadership handed down from generation to generation is what develops great nations. I think that is one of them, yeah. without a doubt. That, that I just I love that quote, and I wish it would be out there more than it is. I wish I, there was some way I could f- get everybody to understand that because mm. that really is our responsibility as current leaders to develop that next generation of leaders. And if we don't, then we deserve what we get because yeah. we will get what we sow. I mean, that, that is a fact. And if we as current leaders aren't doing everything we can to develop that next generation of leaders, then shame on us. Yeah. Well, I love that quote. I think it's um, got a lot of uh, merit, particularly in the environment we're living in right now with the sort of situation in the world. And I certainly believe some of our politicians would do well to note that. Yeah. I think leaders in every profession at every level need to understand that. Yeah. Well, Oak, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate you making the time to be on the podcast. Can't wait to catch up again sometime soon and go well. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the show, Mark. I really do appreciate it. And again, anytime you want to have me back on, I'm happy to come. That'll be great. All right. Catch you soon. Yep. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.